Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Today's episode, essentially, I think, is a whistle-stop tour of what's been happening in the 2022 cat season so far, which has obviously been mainly driven by Ian. So I'm really looking forward to getting some insights in terms of what the initial estimates are for it and what's kind of going to be driving the claims there, as well as looking more broadly at cats and cat modelling and what we've been seeing in the last few years in this space. What are the kind of trends? What are the things we should be looking out for? And who better to take us through all of this than Janaid Seria from SCORE? Janaid, we've known each other for a few years, and I've admired what a leading voice you have become in the area of cat modeling and understanding cat risks and emerging risks. And so it's really quite a thrill to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thanks, Charles. Good to be here. For starters, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your role at SCORE and the team that you're part of and the scope of things that you look at day to day? At SCORE, I'm part of the pricing and modeling department. We're quite a big team of geoscientists and actuaries and modelers. We cover the costing of risks across our insurance and reinsurance portfolio, as well as participate in the setting of capital exposure management scenario assessments. So all things across all lines of business related to the actuarial and modeling assessment of the risk. My team, we're focused on, I guess you could call them central functions. So there's a CAT R&D team that is evaluating models, carrying out research on things like climate change. There's a cat analytics team that is rolling up the portfolio on a daily basis, sharing that with the underwriting community to assess how their underwriting choices aggregate to the portfolio level and how that compares to the set risk tolerances that we have at SCORE. We also have an actual analytics team that is looking at the entire portfolio and trying to identify bias in that portfolio in terms of the pricing, the incorporation of trends like inflation this year. And then we have a team that's focused on capital allocation within pricing. So from a internal model level down to a program level so that we assess costs of capital appropriately for each contract and also governance so when we have model changes obviously too. So that's all the central functions within <laughs> pricing and modeling. We could have almost a full chat about the team and the different roles that each of those do. I guess I have kind of maybe one question before we dive into Ian. Has the makeup of the team skills been relatively consistent or have you found in the last few years it's changed a lot so you mentioned for example you've got scientists in the team have you found the number of them in your team growing or do you find you're getting more kind of data experts in how's the kind of team dynamic changing and how do you see it changing yeah so good question i mean certainly the it skills amongst actuaries has shifted over the years so now it's quite common to see folks with Proficiency in not just one programming language like Python, but Python, R, C++, etc. And that's something I haven't seen before. 
amongst the geoscientists, they also have good coding skills. And what I take away from having a team of modelers and actuaries is the fact that there's so many overlapping skills across these two groups. And it's probably one of the most rewarding things about my job is to work with those two tribes as they were and help them kind of march to the same beat. That is very, very well put. Now, we're talking about the world of natural catastrophes, and something I don't want to leave unsaid is that, of course, we're talking about things that are destroying people's lives, creating human misery on a huge scale. But, of course, the insurance industry is absolutely crucial in helping people rebuild their lives, in helping provide economic certainty, etc. So this is very important work we're talking about. I've sometimes got the sense over my career that the price that is charged for catastrophe insurance is usually a lot more led by market forces than by technical truths. Would you agree? There's certainly some merit to that statement. I think what we find is that the time horizon of practitioners in the market is quite short. So as soon as Hurricane Andrew and the hurricanes in 2017 are out of our time horizon, that tends to drive the market forces in terms of the pricing of or rate changes for that matter. So as we see this year, we're expecting some significant strengthening ahead of 1-1. And that's due to the experience of Ian. But also, this has been a year where we've had lots of surprise from other parts of the world. We have convective storms in France. We've had floods in Australia and all these non-peak climate-sensitive perils in aggregation have really deteriorated the earnings of reinsurers. So you have this reactionary dynamic in the market where post-event there's a big strengthening, but when you have benign experience for long enough, the rates tend to come down again. You mentioned Ian there. I wonder if we should take this opportunity to jump in and talk a bit about that. So obviously, that's been the main hurricane of the year, causing quite significant damage across Florida in particular. Do you want to just give us a bit on what the latest on the estimates of the losses are and what the damage is looking like? Firstly, a note for the vendors. I mean, they have produced some really excellent webinars. So I'm not going to try and regurgitate all the good things that they've covered on those webinars, but I'd really recommend for those that are interested and wanting to understand what makes this event special to get hold of those. And perhaps we could post a link to those afterwards. Absolutely. I can put them in the show notes for the episode. What we do see in the industry, in the market at least, is quite a range in the loss estimates provided for quite intense hurricanes like Ian hitting an area of peak exposure, the wind loss tends to be the dominant component of the loss. However, in this case, we see with the discussions around inflation, litigation or so-called social inflation, that other components of the loss are adding up to be quite material. I'll give you a sense of some of these things. Firstly, there's, and in a way, what I'm describing here are the things that folks need to be thinking about when they're forming their own estimates. And I guess for colleagues like yourself who are involved in reserve reviews and other maybe internal model validations, you're trying to look at the completeness of models. These are topics you may want to touch on. So first is the fact that wind is covered in the private market. Surge is insured 
flood losses are insured through the NFIP, National Flood Insurance Program, from FEMA. And there is, however, some leakage of these flood losses into the wind coverage. So usually models are making an assumption about that, but I've seen some estimates exclude an assumed leakage of flood into wind policies. Second is there's been a discussion about increased vulnerability in Florida for certain homes that are older that were not necessarily hit by prior events like Charlie or Irma. And these events, there's a rule such that if the damage exceeds 25% of the value of the roof, then there would be a full replacement of the roof. So this so-called 25% roof rule can increase the claim severity quite substantially for older homes. And that's something one has to consider in the modeling. So I guess there's a strong incentive for somebody to say that it was more than 25% damage because then you're suddenly getting 100% cover. Yes, indeed. And perhaps in this environment, increased inflation, there's more of an incentive to claim than before. Is it just in Florida where this is? Yes. So in Florida specifically, you see this rule being applied. Then there's things like the coverage of flood in the private market, so whether that's from just surge, so coastal flooding, or inland flooding from rainfall. Some models don't model the rainfall from tropical cyclones, so one has to include provisions for that. There's so-called demand surge or post-loss amplification. This can increase the loss quite materially. And I think there's been quite, a, at least in my discussions with vendors, it's not so clear how much elevated building costs, and how much is demand surge. So I would look at those two numbers together and make sure you're comfortable with them. Is it your sense that there's a greater, whether it's demand surge or building costs, but that item, that that is a much stronger impact on Ian than on some of the other events we've seen in recent years? Yeah, definitely. If you look at the cost of input materials for building a home, whether it be transporting bricks, to the homes, the energy costs, but also cost of labor and cost of timber, cost of cement, those costs have increased quite materially. We also see, I guess, the usual economics of availability of contractors, and this is where we get some of the surge in, in demand. But definitely, I think, relative to what we've seen in prior years, there's been quite an uptick in claim severity. The other is litigation. So the U.S. is quite litigious, and in Florida, there are certain incentives, or at least not incentives, but in the case of Florida, there's this thing called assignment of benefits where you can cede your rights to the claim to a third party, and that third party can recover the claim. And when that happens, those claim payments tend to be higher than if there was not this assignment of benefits. Does the assignment of benefits provider essentially offer the homeowner some immediate cash in return for them then being able to pursue the claim against the insurer, which no doubt they're very skillful at doing and extracting Indeed. the maximum possible amount? We've seen that impact of litigation and the loss impact. What we see from the vendors range quite a lot. Some have said, look, we don't know what this is going to be, so our figures exclude that number. So I would definitely be adding a provision for litigation. Some providers or vendors like KCC, so Karen Clark, 
is estimated at 13 billion, which is quite material. This is just the assignment of benefits components? Just litigation. Oh, litigation. In general. There were some other small things like losses from other lines of business, infrastructure, marine, yachts, etc. And then loss adjustment expenses are generally all the estimates you see exclude loss adjustment expenses. And this is something that you would need to consider. So it sounds like when we read estimates in the news, we need to put quite a big loading on them in order to come to the real total insured cost number? Yeah. Ballpark? What sort of what sort of percentages are we talking about? I've observed quite a big range in the scope of loss in terms of what is included and what's not. Generally, I mean, it's hard to estimate what type of scope, but we're talking something of the order of 30 to 50%. Wow. wow. There's the vendor estimates, but then there's the actual estimates that the insurers themselves come up with and put on their books. Now, we're sitting on the back of a few years of hard markets in certain areas. Some insurers have made good money. Does that mean that would you expect the industry all else being equal to therefore reserve in a bit more conservatively than might otherwise be the case? I think that certainly in a hard market and when everybody is suffering the same big loss, it's easier to reserve with prudent assumptions. Yeah. In the case of Ian, I think there's the thing is first we're using our modeling information to set an initial estimate and then that initial estimate gets transferred into actual claims bookings. And I guess what you want to ensure is that over the next two years, you don't end up with booked reserves in excess of your initial estimate. Yes. So I think firms need to, and this is where folks like yourself can help, is estimate the development of the property cat portfolio, try and understand what drove those years where reserves were underestimated. Perhaps there's a link to big market events like Ian and him. And in those years where you didn't have big events, perhaps it was a bit harder to apply those more prudent reserves. And do you do that kind of analysis in terms of looking back on the estimates that you first set and kind of as you gather more information and learn more about the loss, revise that or see where you might have been? So firstly, from a claims perspective, there's a process in terms of setting the initial estimate informed by modeling and other inputs underwriters' views, talking to clients. I mean, the model is but one input. And then over time, it becomes booked estimates. But I think for us in the pricing and modeling department, what's quite key is that any insights from the event gets translated into changes in the way we model the risk. So if we've learned a bit more about inflation now, well, we've got this event, we've got Summer floods in Europe last year, we've got some convective storms this year, Australian floods, and we can use all of this information in the round to help us set our inflation severity loads for 2023. So I want to pick up on something you mentioned there, Junaid, which is the concept of what we learn from cats over time. And I know your and my careers have had sort of similar timings whereby we both went through that very long period prior to 2017, where there was very little big ticket worldwide cat activity. There were some exceptions, of course, 
But generally, there was very little going on. And then, of course, 2017, we had him, and he's been plenty active since then. What would you say are the big lessons that have been learned in understanding catastrophe risks since 2017? So I think back in before him, and yes, we did have this so-called hurricane drought, the case of U.S. land falling, major hurricanes. But since we had him, I think the discussion around climate change has increased quite significantly. And there's been loads of regulatory initiatives, risk carriers themselves trying to understand. So I think the focus on climate change has led to certain insights about the modeling. And there we've conducted quite a comprehensive study across all our region, climate sensitive perils globally, to come up with an impact analysis of the major climate signals for all our clients globally. So we went through that process, tried to understand what the signals are, what the impacts on our portfolios would be from those signals, and to infer or to help inform our strategy on writing cat risk over the next few years. And that's been quite insightful insofar as we see, in terms of the impact of climate change, a noticeable increase in flood severity globally and a noticeable increase in the frequency of what I call these mid-sized cats. Now, there's been different ways of framing this topic. My colleagues at Swiss Re refer to the concept of secondary perils. I see them more as mid-sized cats. So the likes of the loss we had in the summer floods in Europe, burnt, the him losses, losses of that severity, we're just seeing an uptick in their frequency. Now, that uptick, I think, is a combination of factors, not just climate change. It's migration to coastal cities and, and an increase in coastal flood risk. We see the inflationary impacts and just the tech we put in our homes, basements with <laughs> yep. cinemas, etc. <laughs> yeah. With this uptick, for these various reasons, we see an increase in losses to programs that are designed to be more hit less frequently. And so that's informed our view around our appetite for earnings volatility. And I think a lot of other reinsurers and insurers have thought a bit more about, there's always been discussion about appetite for capital risk. Now I see more discussion about the appetite for earnings risk. What is your appetite for one in 10 aggregate year loss, for instance? Some really interesting points there for like lots of different follow-up questions possibly. I guess maybe just picking up on your last point there. So where do you see the market going in the future? Like not necessarily your company or any company specifically, but do you see a case where you see people increasing their layers, increase lack of coverage at a particular point if we see this increased frequency? How do you see the market responding? So I think given the impacts of inflation, I would expect that insurers are responding also by increasing their retention. So as their portfolios grow, there's a element of stability there so that they can increase their retentions. What we also expect is that obviously with a peril like NatCat risk where there's been a lot of losses, the pricing of those layers will increase. And I think that 
that's going to be a trend. The other thing is, I think different risk carriers will respond differently in terms of their appetite for earnings risk. So you might see some players, some markets decide, okay, because the market's strengthening, we're going to write more of those layers. And I think a function of that response is their overall portfolio. So if you're writing very little cat and you have a lot of non-cat in the portfolio, why wouldn't you jump at this opportunity if you're getting your risk-adjusted returns? Others who maybe have a large percentage of cat within their global portfolio might respond differently because the sense is that the volatility is maybe a bit higher than their tolerance. One thing I'm keen to ask you about is non-natural catastrophes or what people maybe used to call man-made catastrophes. Traditionally, the sophistication of the market in pricing those sorts of risks has always lagged a long way behind that for natural catastrophes. Is that changing? And are there particularly areas where you see the state of the art improving? It's a good question so far as CAT has kind of led the way. I think must acknowledge the work of the vendors and risk carriers in developing models. This kind of scenario-based stochastic catalog, you've got your dependency between contracts across a global portfolio. And I think now we see other classes are trying to, I guess, catch up and the vendors are building out that tech to be able to basically provide a correlated risk view that's responsive to exposure changes, because that's what you want, right? You want a model that can assess the correlations across locations or across risks that is responsive to changes in exposure and changes to any other risk driver. So in the case of CAT, it's going to be changes in hazard. And you see that happening with the design of terrorism models, the design of cyber models, casualty CAT models. I'm pleasantly surprised at the pace at which, and I think that's because they're leveraging the kind of technology and approaches in the CAT modeling space. It's good to see. And to what extent is that research and development being led by reinsurers versus vendors? I think for those reinsurers that have the internal capabilities, they have been developing internal models, and I count score in that group, whether it be for lines like Terra or Marine or Agriculture. And then I think the vendor community are really servicing the entire market, and that's where we see those risk carriers that Maybe it's a small syndicate. They don't have 100 modelers. That's been quite important in terms of the progress of the market to allow those smaller groups to tap into the vendor expertise. I think, obviously, the reinsurers, we also license products from the vendors. But I think it depends on the sophistication of the models and the suitability of those models for your portfolio, whether you decide, I'm going to use a vendor or I'm going to develop something internally. I wanted to go back quickly and just ask another question around climate change, noting that it's maybe not even specifically climate change this question is, but I think climate change is brought into the conversation a lot more. What pathway are we going down? Are we going down a Paris-aligned pathway or 
is the world going to continue to warm and therefore things look very differently. How much are you as a company kind of tracking and trying to understand what route we're going down so you can respond accordingly? Not just, I think it feeds into the points you made around migration and other economic factors. How carefully monitoring those different pathways because potentially the world could be changing massively over the next five to ten years depending on what we do or don't do. Yeah so there's two answers there. The first is a bit more technical which is that when we did our climate change study we looked at the observed trends in temperature, observed trends in CO2 emissions. We looked at the at the time they were called representative concentration pathways RCP scenarios and we used the RCP scenarios plus our empirical assessment of temperature change to come up with a forecast of CO2 emissions and temperature change. And that causal assumption uh, influence was used as a basis for all the CAT scenarios. So if you think of it, it's like greenhouse gas assumption influences your temperature assumption, influences your Climate model assumptions influences your CAT model assumptions and hence the results. We tried to set up the chain so you had coherence across all the region perils so that when you're assessing the results, you can rank the impact in terms of their sensitivity to climate change. So that is something we kind of tracked quite technically, quite closely. Then the second answer is about like transition risk. I think that's the part that's less mathematical. You're trying to understand how a client is assessing the risks that they face in terms of a transition to a low-carbon economy and how they're responding to those risks. And how they respond to those risks will influence how you plan in terms of writing that client over the medium term. So it's quite topical now, ESG, assessing carbon intensity. You might have heard about the Net Zero Insurance Alliance. And next year, as an industry, we're going to be setting targets. And so what's then required is for us to have a clearer assessment of what the carbon footprint is of our portfolios. I think that's not easy to do because it's not as though you can just pull in some data and press a few buttons and out you get a carbon intensity calculation. So I think that's a big area, big topic, and it's something we're definitely watching closely and investing a lot in over the short to medium term. Well, thank you so much, Janae. That has been fascinating. We probably could have easily spoken for <laughs> twice as long. And I've got a long list of questions that I would ask you if we had more time. So thank you. That's really that's been, been a pleasure. illuminating. And I'm a little bit envious of you and this huge group of experts, actuaries, and scientists thinking the hard thoughts to sort of help guide us on some of these very difficult areas. We normally end the podcast with a couple of fun questions. And so I'd like to throw the first one at you, which is, what would be your dream job outside of financial services? Outside of financial services? Because I could think of a few within financial services. (laughs) It's not within insurance, one of which is I really love learning about businesses. So I always had dreamed about being a fund manager, which is kind of what I do in terms of portfolio, what we do here in the team in terms of portfolio analytics. But if it wasn't in the investments or insurance space, 
something that does come to mind is during lockdown, I got myself an allotment and I started building a kitchen garden. Oh, fantastic. I got a lot more into the cooking during lockdown. So I might consider a career as being a chef if it wasn't in financial services. It's no comment on the quality of my cooking. or <laughs> It's definitely not very good, but it is something I enjoy. Yeah. So I'm not sure if anyone would pay. <laughs> well, this leads us very nicely into our second fun question, which is if you invite Charles and I over for dinner, what would you be cooking for us? Okay. Well, you might have heard from our accents, Charles and I are South Africans. So <laughs> one thing that does bind South Africans, I mean, we have like 11 official languages, but one thing is that we do like our barbecues or our brais is what we refer to them yes. in South Africa. So it would be a summer date. And perhaps there'd be a bribe, but of course, we are all needing to be environmentally conscious. We had discussed earlier <laughs> about ESG as a topic, so perhaps it might be a Mediterranean, Otolenghi-style, vegetarian evening. So, <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That sounds fantastic. Well, thanks again. Really great to catch up with you, and I hope we get to have you back on the podcast again soon. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.